Hello, welcome to GM Crypto with the Coin Fund team. We've spent years as a multi-strategy investment firm focused on blockchain. So join us to unpack complex ecosystem trends and hear from the founders shaping the future of Web3. Please subscribe to this podcast and follow us on Twitter at CoinFund underscore IO. Please note that none of the following should be taken as investment advice. See coinfund.io slash disclaimers for more important information. Welcome to GM Crypto with CoinFund. I'm Kelsey, our CMO, and today we have Jake, our founder, and Seth, our head of liquid investments. Jake, earlier you tweeted, I guess they'll hold 1% of your portfolio in Bitcoin because it's an uncorrelated asset narrative for institutions is dead. Could you tell us a little more about that, please? Thanks for having me on our show. For many years, crypto has been asking, when will institutions come and under what thesis will they be investing in crypto? And a couple of years ago, I wouldn't say this was ubiquitous, but a lot of arguments for institutions to come in were to say crypto is kind of an uncorrelated asset class. If you put a small percentage of your institutional portfolio in Bitcoin or some other crypto, you can get the advantages of diversification. What we're actually seeing in 2022 is a ton of increased correlation between Bitcoin and other crypto assets and the macro environment. And there's no one better to talk about it than Seth. So Seth, what are we actually seeing out there in the market? We're actually seeing a market that is recently starting to get more correlated, but I'd say even as recently as a few weeks ago, there was a good amount of dispersion. And part of what I think the crypto market is trying to figure out is how uncorrelated the actual end market exposures are. You have DeFi tokens, NFT, base layers going from relatively low levels of activity to much higher levels of activity on a nice secular growth track. We've seen over the last few months, until you really got into the macro volatility of January, we were seeing a very nice separation in the market where when you had positive fundamentals, when you had activity increasing on a base layer, and base layers are like the operating system, the bottom of the tech stack, you were seeing those tokens outperform and really decouple from what Bitcoin itself was doing. Now, when you get into a really volatile macro environment, like what we're seeing this month, where the Fed surprised everyone with a nice additional push on hawkishness and tightening, talking about drawing the balance sheet down in the minutes from their December meeting, a nice surprise coming in earlier this month, you've had all risk assets move to one correlation and come down. And within crypto, we saw that dispersion narrow and saw a bunch of assets catch up to where Bitcoin was. So in general, we're seeing a really nice equity-like diversification across the crypto space. But when you get into real stressed moments within the financial markets, we do see things start to trade together. And there's another element here that's interesting, which is you have more traditional funds investing in crypto side by side with other assets, whether it's equities or credit. And when you have that side-by-side investment, when their prime brokers take down their leverage, it hits their entire portfolio. When they decide to take their gross down on their own, it hits their entire portfolio. So we're seeing to some extent as well, the disadvantage of having crypto become a more broadly owned asset and having it commingled 
in portfolios with a lot of other traditional assets. So Seth, obviously correlations between crypto and other assets or asset classes, they increase or decrease over time. Would you say that this is a time where, number one, that correlation is particularly strong, maybe stronger than it has been? And two, what explains that correlation? Is it most crypto assets are now held by institutions who are watching the macro environment? You go through different regimes for markets, any market, not just crypto. About two years ago, there was a Iranian missile that was fired and Bitcoin started to rally and the equity markets were trading off. You had a risk off flight to safety into Bitcoin, and we've had that at various points throughout its history. But right now we're in a regime where Bitcoin and the broader set of crypto assets are seen very much as being risk on. They're seen as representing the next wave of technology innovation. So this is the Web3 narrative, which is core to a lot of our investment theses. It's something that we invest in across our venture portfolios, across our liquid portfolios. And it's a tech thesis. It's the thesis that crypto is a core part of the technology stack that brings power back to users globally and away from the traditional Web2 tech-walled gardens, by virtue of being the next wave of technology investing, tech investing is a very risk-on part of the investment world. That's part of what's defining the current trading regime for crypto. The Web3 shift in focus from folks, as well as some of the correlation dynamics that we've been seeing, does that make Bitcoin less interesting, more interesting as an investment? What do you think? I think of Bitcoin as being the lowest risk, lowest reward crypto asset. In a raging bull market, most of the rest of your crypto portfolio is going to outperform Bitcoin if those tokens are associated with projects that have really good fundamental momentum. And in down markets, like the market we're in now, Bitcoin will outperform a lot of other assets. And we're seeing that play out in a real risk off fear coming across broader markets type of environment. Bitcoin plays a role in a portfolio. It's an interesting asset for someone who wants to dip their toe in the water in crypto. And the reality is we see most people start with Bitcoin and then start to learn about the broader crypto ecosystem, Ethereum, then everything built on Ethereum, then challenger-based layers. And that's the entryway into learning about the full crypto technology stack and the broader set of investable opportunities across crypto. So Seth and Jake, with all of these changes in the market recently, I've seen a lot of conversation around diamond hands. So what does that mean to each of you and how does that translate into investment thesis? You might know that I work primarily on the early stage venture side at CoinFund. And so that means that when we're making investments in our venture vehicles, we're generally taking pretty long-term views on the companies and projects that we back, it could be the case that those projects have liquid assets, or they could be decentralized networks themselves that have a native token or something. And in fact, those liquid assets could come much earlier in the project lifecycle than what you would see in traditional venture, where you have a eight to 10-year horizon on average for liquidity in your investments. Very different in, in crypto. But nevertheless, what diamond hands means to me in that context is taking a long-term view on the impacts of these projects in the space 
and being really aligned with the teams that we back. So we wouldn't be doing things like dumping the tokens as soon as the market has some volatility. If anything, we'd be reviewing what advantages market volatility could bring to our portfolio, to our positions, how our teams could potentially use those types of buying opportunities within their projects. It's generally about taking a long-term view on what we're doing here. On the liquid market side, I like to say that the best risk management that we have is fundamental investing, finding the teams that are developing the projects that we think have the most potential over the long run, supporting them, trying to help them be successful. We're underwriting our investments on a longer time horizon. When there's volatility that's tied to macro dynamics, like what's happening now when there's volatility tied to crypto-specific dynamics like what was happening in the summer of last year, but not specifically tied to the protocols that we're investing in, we'll typically use those as opportunities to build larger positions for the eventual rebound. This is a dynamic that's somewhat new to crypto, I'd say as of the last 12 to 18 months, but that dynamic where fundamental momentum, people understanding which projects are really the high quality projects that have multiple years of really good fundamental catalysts. Those are the protocols that tend to hold up the best and tend to rebound fastest. And seeing that tie into fundamentals is a really positive development for crypto. And again, it's relatively new for the space. Thank you. And speaking of those fundamentals, I'd love to hear a little bit more, Jake, about the current state of infrastructure, specifically interoperability. What new developments are you seeing in that realm? A lot of people are asking, what are we looking forward to in 22 in the technology side of blockchain? What we see right now, first of all, is it's the best time it's ever been for alternative base layers. So not just Ethereum is now out there in market, but obviously Solana has done quite well and demonstrated some traction. Polkadot has had some very successful parachain auctions, and we just saw last week the launch of Moonbeam. Near has been performing really well from a liquid market sense, but also there's a really interesting community on Near centered in Eastern Europe that's starting to build out a lot of Near native sort of DeFi and NFT projects. Toward the end of 2019, there was this predominant narrative that Ethereum is just too far ahead. It has so much momentum. And because Ethereum has all of the DeFi or all of the NFTs or whatever the case might be, it's gone way ahead of everybody. And what we see in the market today is that the market is actually very accepting of these alternatives. People appreciate different technological trade-offs of base layers. Different projects require different requirements along the lines of decentralization and speed and throughput and things like that. A lot of the base layers are doing well. The fact that they're doing well has created more demand for things like scalability technology for layer twos. We see ZK rollups gearing up to really launch this year. And we have a number of optimistic rollups in production. We have alternative technologies that are delivering fast base layers. And we even have speed up on the Bitcoin side. There's a whole area called Bitcoin DeFi. One of the projects there is Stacks, which is essentially a smart contract layer using the Bitcoin network as a settlement layer with a bunch of really interesting projects on it. All of that activity has also created a demand for interoperability between those chains. We've seen now not just people connecting blockchains together through bridges, 
but we are actually seeing generalized interoperability protocols that can connect any two blockchains that have smart contract abilities. The insight there is interoperability is going to be really good for users. Think about a Uniswap or a balancer, an exchange that has liquidity pools on different networks. Using interoperability technology, what people are going to be able to do is essentially aggregate all of the liquidity across all of the networks in all of the world and present it as a single product. People coming in to that product from Ethereum or from Tezos or a different network will be able to transact with this interface much more easily without having to think about the network that I'm transacting on. What is the backend? Like when you drive your car, you're not really thinking about how your engine works or what steps the factory took to attach the chassis to your car and things like that. But today, when we use blockchains, we were very much thinking about the underlying technology. What we need to do to move to more of a mainstream perspective on these applications is to help the users focus on the subject matter of these products rather than the rails and blockchains and decentralized networks that they're built on. So I think we're going to make huge progress in that area this year and basically the interoperability of all these different chains. We're now in a multi-chain world. Like someone said on Twitter the other day, the multi-chain future is now the multi-chain present. I believe that with that, Web3 itself, the stack of protocols that is providing computation and storage and all this middleware for the data of decentralized applications, that's maturing rapidly as well. How do you think that affects what we're looking at on the venture side? When I think about the liquid markets, interoperability means we have to start reconfiguring how we think about valuations of base layers. And there was a little bit of that that we saw in the fall where Solana had 15 billion of TVL that it built up over the year. But then when you saw Avalanche and Luna get to similar levels of TVL over just a few months, the valuation that people were willing to pay on that TVL came down. The mode around building that level of TVL wasn't quite as deep as expected. So when you think about the shift from a multi-chain world being the future to now being the present, how does that change what we're most interested in or what we're most confident in from an early stage venture investing perspective? It opens up a lot more possibilities for investing. What we're seeing is that every network has to go through a process where they have to build up basic infrastructure and tooling to be compatible with everybody else. Even something like Stacks, which is a smart contracting platform built on top of the Bitcoin blockchain, we usually think of Bitcoin block time being pretty slow, but Stacks is actually able to transact pretty quickly. They're going through a process where they're building out DEXs that look like Uniswap, NFT platforms, bridges, compelling applications like CityCoins, for example, where it helps the narrative of that product to be on a network like Stacks, because then you can argue that you're on the most secure blockchain in the world when you're launching a municipal currency, which is what CityCoins is in the business of doing. My point is that as we go into the multi-chain present, if you will, there are actually opening up a lot more opportunities than there were before because every network needs some kind of baseline of infrastructure. A lot more of those are now investable because the base layer is doing well. So the market is growing. And the last thing to say is these technologies are now much better understood. 
DeFi launched at the end of 2019, it was really scary for investors to bet on DEXs. But now what we've seen over the last three years or so is that DEX market share is growing. DEXs are becoming cross-chain, sometimes achieving better pricing than centralized exchanges. They're achieving other properties like permissionlessness better than some of the other centralized exchanges. So now it's become a matter of course to invest in a DEX on a new platform because you know that platform is going to need this type of primitive. The answer to your question is the market is grown and is more addressable. It almost seems like it also opens up the opportunity set higher in the technology stack. So you end up having more commonality of tooling, more commonality of accessibility in the lower parts of the technology stack, which then opens up the design space in the pure consumer-facing application layer. Absolutely. There's more competition now to get apps into the hands of mainstream users because there's a lot more base layer networks out there. Look at Dapper Labs and Flow. This is an incredible example where using a mainstream user first type of strategy, they were able to convert millions of mainstream users. Now those users can become a little bit more crypto native or more crypto knowledgeable if they want. But the fact is that they're on a product which lives on a blockchain and has all of the properties that you would want coming from that. Broadly, I think we're seeing a lot more go-to markets. There's a huge opportunity now. If you look at DeFi, by and large, mainstream people still don't use DeFi, and yet DeFi is generating billions of dollars in protocol revenue today just from enthusiasts. So there's a huge opportunity there. NFTs have gone somewhat mainstream. We've now been on Saturday Night Live, and we see a lot of corporates like Twitter and Taco Bell dropping NFTs on Rarible. But if you look at the volume of the NFT space, the vast majority of that volume is still coming from crypto-native collectibles in-game assets, and the corporate volume is basically zero. So all of that adoption is still in front of us. Excitingly, in Web3, we're now going to be able to put decentralized versions of things like Medium or Twitter or social media platforms or even some marketplaces in front of people so they could really see and touch with their hands the efficiency that's created by these technologies. You're absolutely right. We're now more proximate to the consumer than we've ever been. And at CoinFund, we've now been making increasing percentages of our investments in the app space as opposed to just infrastructure. With that focus on the app layer, for the top level of the application layer, it's easy to get excited about the market potential. And we've seen valuations ticking up nicely. How do you think about where we are in the early stage venture cycle for crypto? Is this a super cycle? How valuation sensitive are we? Where are we valuation sensitive? Where are we less valuation sensitive? We kind of have it both ways right now because venture valuations are going up, but the market is crashing on the liquid markets. Part of the reason we're seeing increased valuations is because there's a ton of new interest in the space, not just from institutions, but VCs are finally taking the crypto world a little bit more seriously than they did a couple of years ago. They realized there's a pretty big opportunity here. There's a lot of new crypto investors as well, people coming out of funds and starting their own thing, founders using some of their experience to invest. We've seen ecosystem funds pop up. Generally, there's been a lot more capital that wants to go into the space. That's actually really good for the space. 
at times when there's too much capital, it could create suboptimal products. It could create a bubble or create overvaluation. But what we actually need in crypto is a lot of new people to be entrepreneurs. We need a lot more technologists than what we have and smart contract programmers. We need people to leave big tech and start Web3 companies to show other people in big tech that this is a really interesting area and to culturally win them over. That activity is bolstered by the fact that there's all this available capital in the space to fund everything. I used to work at Amazon. One of my old colleagues who is a technical product manager there and now worked at Meta for many years, he's thinking about doing a Web3 startup. And one of the things that's making him comfortable to come over to this totally new space is the availability of capital. On balance, I think it's good. We're still valuation sensitive at CoinFund, but we also try to be really thoughtful about the risk reward potentials of certain disruptive technologies. So we'll consider deals on a facts and circumstances basis. I completely agree. And next time we'll be talking a little bit more about the trends with people engaging with Web3 and getting into the space as well as city coins and mainstream adoption from a design perspective within the consumer facing space. Thank you, Jake and Seth, so much for hopping on the show today. And I will see you all next time. Thanks, Kelsey. Mm-hmm.